0: Welcome to Biota. I'm Phil Gibson. For this first full episode of Season 2, I've chosen a topic that is as fundamental to biology as any topic could be, and that topic is evolution. And because this episode is coming out so close to his 212th birthday, it seems appropriate that I should also talk about a scientist whose name is forever associated with evolutionary thought Charles Darwin. Instead of just going through a list of what Darwin discovered and the nuts and bolts of natural selection and evolution, I want to approach this topic from the perspective of two mysteries. One of the mysteries has been known about for several decades and involves Darwin and another scientist named Alfred Russell Wallace. This mystery was finally solved several years ago. The second mystery, however, it was only revealed publicly last year. It's understandable if you missed it in the news. There were a lot of other really important things going on in 2020, so you might have missed it. But in some communities of scientists, when this news broke, it hit fairly close to home. I even remember when I heard it, and my first thought was, of course, when else could this happen but 2020? So our first mystery, it begins on June 18, 1858, at Charles Darwin's home in Down, England. But before I get to the events of that day, let me give you a little background to kind of set the stage. Charles Robert Darwin was a Victorian-era English scientist who was born February 12, 1809, in Shrewsbury, England. He died April 19, 1882, and he's buried in Westminster Abbey. He's one of the few non-royals to receive that very special honor. Darwin was what they called a naturalist. He was someone who observed, studied, and documented the living things and what they did in nature. Now we might think of him as kind of an ecologist or a taxonomist. Regardless of the name... Darwin clearly enjoyed collecting, preserving, documenting, and studying nature and biodiversity. He learned taxidermy and other techniques for collecting and preserving biological specimens as a hobby when he was young. Darwin published books and research papers throughout his career on a variety of topics that ranged from island formation to floral biology. Each one was groundbreaking in its own right but it's his landmark publication, commonly referred to as The Origin of Species, that is his primary claim to fame and undoubtedly his greatest achievement. In this book, he combined his observations of species and variation in biodiversity at home with the observations he made while on a Royal Navy expedition aboard the HMS Beagle. He used these observations to describe natural selection, the mechanism that drives evolution of adaptations. He also took another step. He put things together in a way no one had done before then. He developed a model that demonstrated how the mechanism he identified could drive evolution and the formation of new species. His book was published November 24, 1859 and rapidly sold out. It is his combination of a mechanism and a model of evolution described in that book that stimulated new ideas about the story of life on Earth and changed biology forever. Now this brings us to our first mystery. It's a little over a year before Darwin's ideas were shared with the world. On June 18, 1858, Charles Darwin was at his home in Down, England, when he received a disturbing letter. This letter was from a young English naturalist named Alfred Wallace, who was working on islands in the Pacific Ocean, primarily in the Malay archipelago, what we now call Indonesia, in a region between Asia and Australia. He read the letter and next the short manuscript that accompanied it. After reading both, Darwin immediately wrote to his friend, colleague, and mentor, Sir Charles Lyell, to help him figure out what to do. In his letter, Darwin explained to Lyell that he had received Wallace's letter and the manuscript that Wallace had included. Darwin had met Wallace in England once, and occasionally they exchanged correspondence afterwards. In his latest letter from the island of Ternate, Wallace had sent this manuscript in which he described a process that he thought explained how species could change over time. Because he was literally on the other side of the world, Wallace asked Darwin to read the manuscript and share it with other colleagues to get their comments. And this is when Darwin wrote to Lyell. In his letter, Darwin wrote about Wallace's manuscript and he wrote, quote, I never saw a more striking coincidence. If Wallace had my manuscript sketch written out in 1842, he could not have made a better short abstract. Even his terms now stand as heads of my chapters. End quote. Darwin had reason to be concerned. He spent the 20 years since returning from his voyage on the Beagle in 1838, quietly developing his ideas on the process that he had named natural selection. He had spent many days and hours over those 20 years walking a path called the Sandwalk that circled the garden at his home thinking about his ideas. He had quietly exchanged letters and had discussions with a small group of his closest scientific colleagues, and he shared his radical ideas with them about what he described as descent with modification that resulted in changes he called transmutation. Darwin knew the risks of his ideas and conclusions. Science, society, and the church had rejected the science and the scientists who first began exploring the idea and the evidence that life on earth had changed over time. One member of his trusted group, Charles Lyell, had even urged Darwin to not delay publishing his work, which in 1858 had grown from a short paper into an impressive manuscript. Lyell warned Darwin that someone else would surely come to the same conclusions eventually, and Darwin would be scientifically scooped. Okay, let's stop for a minute so I can address a common misconception. Darwin didn't discover or invent evolution he wasn't even close to being the first person to propose that species were not all created at once as is in their present form. And they had definitely changed over time. Scientists before Darwin, such as Lamarck, St. Hilaire, Chambers, De Candelay, even his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, had argued the controversial idea that species change over time. The wealth of natural history information and other scientific evidence could not be ignored. How could one ignore the conclusion that life had changed when you could see the fossils of long-extinct animals with your own eyes? These recently discovered strange creatures were distinct from but oddly similar to species living today. It was all of the similarities among organisms in particular that was a point of intense debate to Victorian-era scientists. What does this sameness among organisms mean? For example, The bones in your arms and legs follow a pattern going from your shoulder to your fingers or from your hips to your toes. And I'm paraphrasing paleontologist Neil Shubin here, but they show a pattern of one big bone, two smaller bones, some little bones, and then fingers or toes. If you look at the limbs of a dog, a lizard, a bird, a bat, a platypus, an opossum, or a dolphin, you find the same pattern. You see a common sameness in this and many other features despite differences in the overall appearance and function of those traits. Some of Darwin's contemporaries said this reflected a divine plan, but others said no. This similarity among organisms, where we see common structures modified for different functions, is evidence of evolution from a common ancestor. This concept, called homology, has been shown to be extremely strong evidence of evolution in numerous cases. It is found not only in bones, but also in physiology, development, and most importantly, DNA and RNA. So, Charles Darwin was just one of many scientists trying to understand the natural forces producing the diversity of organisms and adaptations that we see every day. He was just the one who solved the mechanism to explain the puzzle. Okay, let's get back to Darwin. Darwin had thought about what homology meant while traveling in South America. There, Darwin had dined on armadillos with gauchos, but while exploring for minerals, he also found fossils of massive extinct animals called glyptodonts. Darwin knew they had to share a history with armadillos because of the similar patterns you could see on the plates of their protective shells. These fossilized animals are many times larger than modern armadillos, but all of these traits provide evidence that show that they shared a similar ancestry. They're clearly related. They have homologies that indicate they share a common ancestor. Other species showed the same thing, homology and variation among organisms that he observed. The importance of homology to Darwin was particularly evident on the Galapagos Islands. While strolling the Sandwalk, Darwin fondly recalled September 15, 1835, when he first stepped onto those islands that would be forever associated with his name. On the Galapagos, he saw massive tortoises with distinct shell shapes that indicated the specific islands and habitats where they lived. He marveled at two species of iguanas, one terrestrial and one marine, both with many features in common indicating their shared heritage, but each having distinct features that allowed them to specialize for feeding on land or in the ocean. And of course there were the finches. Darwin noticed the incredible variation in beak adaptations and behaviors among these bird species. Each one was specialized to eat foods that varied from island to island. His observations of the small birds that he found on these islands and nowhere else were the key to his discovery. As he did throughout his voyage, Darwin collected and preserved specimens of each bird species, put them in crates, and sent them back to England on ships. He sent the Galapagos birds to John Gould, an expert on birds. When he returned to England, Darwin asked Gould about the wrens and mockingbirds and finches he had sent from the Galapagos for Gould to identify. Gould informed Darwin that all of the birds from the Galapagos were neither wrens nor mockingbirds. Even though they looked like them, each one of them was a different species of finch. There were 14 different species in total, all previously unknown to science. Each finch species was very similar to the others with the obvious exceptions of their beaks. The beaks of different species were specialized to feed on different foods. However, despite these critical differences, they shared other homologies that clearly indicated they were finches, and very similar to finches that live in South America. Darwin reasoned that because the Galapagos are volcanic islands, they must have originally been colonized by members of a finch species from South America. The colonizing finches and their offspring spread to different islands where there were different things to eat, you know, plants and insect species that had arrived on the islands before the birds got there. Ecologists would say that there were a lot of unoccupied niches on the islands when the finches colonized them. The finches changed and adapted to fill those niches. Birds with beaks that were able to eat those foods survived and passed their beak traits on to their descendants. The birds with beaks that couldn't eat those foods, well, they died or they at least didn't reproduce and pass their traits on. Or maybe, maybe they found something different to eat, and their descendants would specialize on eating that. Descent with modification was how Darwin described it. Darwin also reasoned that because resources are limited, there is always competition among individuals in the same species and between different species to get those resources. This struggle for existence, as Darwin described it, It results in differences in survival and reproduction among individuals. Differences in survival and reproduction based on inherited traits will cause those traits to change in a lineage over time. Now, this part about being inherited traits, that's the essential part. The feature must be a trait in the parent that they can pass on to their offspring genetically. That, that's what Darwin figured out. But how could Darwin support such a bold claim? I mean, fossils are great. But how can you demonstrate a process that Darwin admitted was very slow, and genetics hadn't even been discovered yet? Well, Darwin had an answer, and he even had some data. Darwin had observed how breeders could change traits in a lineage of plants or animals over time. Cattle, dogs, sheep, wheat, mustards, all kinds of species were changed by breeders. For example... Different breeds of cattle were produced by carefully choosing individuals who had desirable traits and allowing them to reproduce. Individuals without the traits, they didn't get to reproduce as much. But what this does is it causes that desirable trait to be more common in the herd. Sometimes traits were chosen that would enhance milk production. Other times meat production was selected. Darwin himself even bred pigeons and observed how he could choose individuals to breed and change specific features of a lineage over time. Here's how Darwin explained it in The Origin of Species. Quote, I have called this principle by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved by the term of natural selection in order to mark its relation to man's power of selection. End quote. The selection by humans that he talks about here is what we call artificial selection. Darwin correctly reasoned that if humans could select and change livestock and crops, nature could do the same thing for everything else. Darwin had figured out the mechanism that produces adaptation, and he had the data to support his claim. But now, in June of 1858, after all of his careful and meticulous work over 20 years, Darwin receives this letter from Wallace, who's pretty much come to the same conclusion. Darwin read the manuscript to see that many of his ideas were being described by someone else. Unsure what to do, Darwin contacted Sir Lyell and the renowned and respected botanist Dr. J.D. Hooker. After much consideration, Lyell and Hooker decided that parts of Darwin's unfinished book and Wallace's manuscript should be combined into a single document and then read to the Linnaean Society as a single co-authored publication. Darwin agreed... But Wallace, being on the other side of the planet, was unaware of the decision. On June 1st, 1858, Darwin and Wallace's joint manuscript titled On the Tendency of Species to Form Varieties and on the Perpetuation of Varieties and Species by Natural Means of Selection was read to a small group of about 30 members of the Linnaean Society. The scientists in attendance were convinced by Darwin's and Wallace's discoveries. It made perfect sense and explained so much. The eminent biologist Thomas Huxley who would later be known as Darwin's bulldog, he's reported to have said that he considered himself, quote, extremely stupid not to have thought of that, end quote. The joint Darwin-Wallace manuscript was later published and attracted some attention. However, Darwin, he went on to finish his book, and on November 24, 1859, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection was released. It changed everything, and Darwin would thereafter be the name associated with the discovery of evolution by natural selection. And this brings us to the first mystery. In 1972, science historians discovered a second letter. In addition to writing to Darwin, Wallace sent a similar letter to a colleague named Bates. In this letter, Wallace described his ideas on evolution, very similar to what was described to Darwin. However, Mr. Bates received his letter two weeks before Darwin said he received his. The letter with its postmarked envelope confirms the date of delivery to Bates. Postmarked documents of the letter sent to Darwin cannot be found in his archives. The date of Darwin's letter arriving was determined based on the date of the letter that Darwin sent to Lyell. This led some historians to speculate that maybe Darwin had used Wallace's letter and manuscript to finish formulating his ideas on evolution. They suggested that Wallace mailed the letter to Darwin and Bates on the same day, So, they would have left Ternate on the same ship, headed for England. Consequently, they concluded that Darwin was not truthful about when he actually received his letter. After some detective work, however, other historians have said, hold on, not so fast. After comparing not just the letters to Darwin and Bates, but also other correspondence between Darwin and Wallace, it shows that in his letter to Darwin, Wallace is responding to comments in a letter that he had just received from Darwin on the day that he mailed his letter to Bates. Remember, this is way before text messages or even modern mail. These letters traveled by steamships whose logs document their movements. Given what we know about how long Wallace typically took to reply, his letter to Darwin, known to historians as the Turnate Letter, it probably traveled on a ship that departed later. The ship's logs and other records support that conclusion. Science historian Charles Smith has also noted that even if they were mailed on the same day, the way that mail was crated and shipped at that time could have easily resulted in the two letters being placed on different boxes that followed different routes on their way to London. That would also account for any differences in delivery dates to Mr. Bates or Mr. Darwin. And so, based on what they know about ship's log, Darwin received the letter exactly when he should have. So, as far as I'm concerned, that mystery is solved. Darwin didn't steal ideas from Wallace. But that does bring up another question. Why do we remember Darwin for discovering evolution more than Wallace anyway? I should point out here that that Wallace didn't dissolve into obscurity. He is remembered for many contributions he made to the field of biogeography. And throughout his life, he acknowledged that it was Darwin who deserved the credit for natural selection, not him. But why is that? Why did Darwin get all the credit? Well, one of the main reasons is really that Darwin had a much more well-developed argument. He had addressed the topic more thoroughly than Wallace. You see, both he and Wallace noticed how islands were basically natural laboratories for experiments in evolution. Populations on different islands often had similar species that showed distinct variation in some traits. Wallace had made similar observations about birds on the islands he studied that were very similar to what Darwin observed in the Galapagos. Observations of isolated island populations and then the consequences of competition were foundations of both of their arguments. But what Darwin also had that wasn't in Wallace's manuscript was his research and observations in artificial selection. That, combined with his observations and interpretations of fossils, gave him a solid scientific theory describing evolutionary change. And there's also one more thing that Darwin developed that Wallace hadn't thought about yet. And that is what brings us to the second mystery. In Darwin and Wallace's time, evolution was viewed as either a ladder with the best species on the top rung and all the other species are trying to get up there. Or it was viewed as a line with species changing from one into another and also still getting better all the time. But Darwin didn't see things that way. Darwin saw evolution as a tree. Imagine a tree growing in a park. Think about its trunk growing upwards from the ground. Eventually, a branch departs from that main trunk, and then maybe another. And each one of these branches also forks into smaller and smaller branches until they're, they're finally twigs with little buds out at their tips. Well, that's how Darwin saw evolution. Just like the tree's trunk, he saw all species as sharing a common origin, a common history. But at some point, lineages would branch off and diverge from one another. Sometimes, lineages branch off and diverge from that common genetic history, and they grow in a different direction. For example, animals could be a big branch on the tree of life, and different things like arthropods or annelid worms or mammals could each be a separate branch on that larger animal branch. And each one of those branches would split into other smaller branches until eventually you get all of the little species in those groups out at the buds on the tips. And the same thing would be happening on the plant branch or the fungus branch or any of the other branches in our tree. Following Darwin's logic, scientists use cladograms to explore patterns of relationships in studies ranging from explaining the relationship of all life on Earth to identifying the common origins of a novel zoonotic coronavirus. Knowing how to interpret these diagrams is a fundamental scientific skill that can be applied throughout biology. But wait a minute. Remember how I promised you a second mystery? Well, here it is. Darwin sketched out his first idea, his first model of this new way of conceiving the tree of life, as a simple sketch of a primitive tree diagram. He drew this first simple cladogram in 1837 in what's now known as Darwin's Notebook B. It was a profound insight. In this simple sketch, he had laid the conceptual foundation of a model that linked his mechanism of natural selection to the observable diversity of life. And in classic Darwin's style, he wrote next to his simple diagram a two-word phrase, quote, I think, end quote. Unfortunately, in late 2020, Cambridge University Library announced that Notebook B, the one that contained Darwin's famous Tree of Life diagram, that notebook's missing, and it was very possibly stolen. Notebook B and another one of Darwin's notebooks were last seen in November 2000 during a normal request to the library. Shortly after that, Curators noticed these two notebooks were missing. They first thought that they were misplaced, perhaps filed in the wrong location. But after a 20-year search of the library, they determined that they were gone, never to be seen again unless whoever has them now returns them to the library. We do have digital copies of the notebooks, so their content is not lost. But there's something sad about the loss of this notebook because it's the physical piece of evidence showing where Darwin first took the seed of an idea, nurtured it, and grew it into an explanation of the tree of life. So, if by some odd chance you know where the notebook is, or maybe by some odd coincidence you've come across my podcast and you have the notebook, give it back. It's not yours. All right, this brings us to the end of this mystery-themed episode. Hopefully it's given you a better insight into, first of all, the history of Darwin and Wallace's contribution to science. They both identified natural selection as an evolutionary force that acts on populations in the natural environment. And secondly, how Darwin introduced the idea of tree thinking that gives us a model to study, diagram, and interpret the patterns of life that has evolved in both space and time. Before I bring this to an end, I want to mention the two key resources I used in developing this episode. First, The Song of the Dodo, Island Biogeography in an Age of Extinction by David Quammen and second, Dispelling the Darkness, Voyage in the Malay Archipelago and the Discovery of Evolution by Wallace and Darwin, and this book was written by John Van Wee. These two books give historical accounts and many examples of how Darwin and Wallace made their discoveries and the importance of islands in understanding how evolution worked. Of course, On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin and The Malay Archipelago by Alfred Russell Wallace are also essential texts that every biologist should read. If you want to learn more about the topics in this episode, please visit my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. I'm Phil Gibson, and thanks for listening to Biota. All right, it's time to roll credits. As always, Terry Gibson provided her invaluable help with episode development, and Robert Gibson helped me track down some essential library resources. So once again to everybody, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. All opinions expressed here are those of the author alone. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. Thank you.